As I was listening to the devotional this morning, which I appreciated very much, it was a wonderful reminder, um, a thought did occur to me, and that is that in the context in which I often work, we often say that we can accomplish almost nothing from the General Conference. Um, and yet we have our temptations in the same line. The work of the church happens at the local level. And that's a wonderful organizational structure. And you don't, you don't go to the general conference to accomplish a whole lot at the local level. And I have learned that over the years, having worked in local churches, in conferences, at divisions, um, and now at the general conference. We may be able to plant a few ideas and do some encouraging and some supporting, and that's our major role. But at the same time, we still have our temptations to become selfish and proud and uplift and lifted up. And so we are all the same in our need to daily fall before the, f the cross and give our lives to our Savior. There is, we're all the same in that regard. That's a great equalizer. And that also at the same time brings us together in ministry. And irregardless of what our profession is, what our skill levels are, what we do the best as we humbly team together in doing comprehensive health ministry, we can be effective for Jesus Christ. And so I look forward to even more inspiration as we uh, meet this, this weekend. Normally, I look out at the Pacific Ocean and I'm looking westward. <laughs> I grew up on the west coast, not on the ocean, but we often visited. I've, done, I've been at a few conferences on the coastline, and we look west when we look out. Here we're looking east. And, uh, but it's a privilege to be here. We have had a wonderful almost two weeks now here in the SPD. We spent uh, last, last weekend and the weekend before in New Zealand. And... Uh, it's always good to meet God's people. And I must say that as I look at this audience, even though I don't know very many of you, you're my favorite people because you're interested in health ministry and in the Lord's work. Um, one of the great blessings of being a part of God's work is that you get acquainted with people here and there. And um, you rarely go somewhere but what you know some people. So it's been wonderful to reconnect with Rob. Uh, we were just talking at breakfast this morning. It was probably 2000, the year 2000. I invited him to come and be a speaker, at, a health speaker at our camp meeting in Walla Walla, Washington. And he came and we had a wonderful time together. Um, and of course, uh, as I walked in here, Sibella was greeting us uh, so warmly. And uh, my first meeting of Sibella, and I think most of you know her, I think she's going to share a little bit this afternoon. Um, Kevin Price introduced us 
at the Health Ministries Department as one of the great health heroes for your division. And as I've gotten acquainted with her, I certainly think that's a very fitting description. Uh, Paul Rankin, of course, is in your Health Ministries Department. I met him when he was first uh, Health Ministries Director in New Zealand. Um, Phil Mills, we've been uh, friends for many, many years and uh, share a passion for health ministry. And of course, your director here at the Health Ministries Department, Kevin Price, is in the estimation of, of the Health Ministries Department at the General Conference, one of the strongest leaders, and you certainly have the largest Health Ministries Department in the entire world field uh, here in SPD. And you're accomplishing many wonderful things with God's blessing. And it's been wonderful to be with Kevin and Sue the past two weeks. Uh, as they've showed us around and showed us some of the beauties of, of this great division. We've only seen just a little bit of it, but uh, we've, we feel like we've been filled. And as Pastor Kevin said yesterday, uh, one of the highlights of this trip, I know, uh, will be our visit to Sunnyside on Thursday. He mentioned that... Uh, my wife's grandmother came from Sydney and Corbong area, and she was living at Corbong as a little girl during the time that Ellen White was there. And he, several of you have said, you've got to tell the story, so I will do that before I begin my message very quickly. She was about four years old when she first came to Corbong. Ellen White was there. She was born with a deformed hand on her right side. She had a very small thumb, missing one finger. Kids made a lot of fun of her. Um, she wasn't fully accepted because of that. Ellen White had the habit, apparently at that time, of after church, gathering the children while the parents were visiting and telling them a story. And she looked out one day and saw that there was a new face there. And it was Katie, April's grandmother. And she was kind of standing on the edge of the circle. She was new. And Ellen White called her and said, come and sit in my lap. Sometimes we think of Ellen White as being a very austere, harsh. We see that in pictures sometimes. But I think that's part of the year. It took a long time to set up a picture in those days. There was no digital cameras. Couldn't take, take uh, 16 shots when you press the, sh <laughs> the shutter. Um, and I think it was also part of the custom to look really formal. And uh, we see that in lots of pictures. But it conveys an, uh, an attitude or a reality that may not have been true. Anyway, Ellen White invited her up to sit in her lap and she asked her what her name was, and she noticed that she was hiding this deformed hand in her skirt. And she took that hand in her hand in front of all of the children, and she said, this hand, this bothers you, doesn't it? And Katie was nearly in tears, as any four-year-old would be. And she held that hand, and she said, Katie, God has a special purpose for that hand. Ellen White became her friend, 
and she would never want to miss those stories. When Ellen White was leaving to go back to America, after she had told the story, she called Katie, who was now about seven years old, to, to ask her to see her after this story. And she personally had a word with Katie. She said, I want you to promise that when we get to heaven, and she took her hand, after we see Jesus, I want you to tell me how God used this hand in a special way. Katie grew, went on to grow up. She took midwifery at Sydney Sanitarium and became a midwife. She became a missionary after marrying April's grandfather, um, who was an American. They went to the Celebes in Indonesia and opened up the work there. And in her work as a midwife in those primitive countries or areas, she was able to deliver hundreds and hundreds of babies with that little hand. And um, it was a great blessing that the Lord used to encourage his work. So that's the story. And this is my wife's first time here in Australia. And we were really blessed and inspired by our visit to Sunnyside and to that area. So it has been a blessing for us to be here. I love your title, From Bended Knee to the Bedside. And as I read that several weeks ago in the, in the materials that was sent, I was reminded of this statement, the simplest prayer that is put up in faith is acceptable to heaven. The humblest soul that looks up to Christ in faith is connected with the God of the universe. And all of us have the privilege of seeing that happen in our sphere of work. Rob did not mention to you, some of you may have seen the book, the missionary book, Health and Healing, edited by Peter Landless and Mark Finley. If you look in the back, you'll see that I was one of the contributors and I'm listed as a physician. But I need to clarify that. I'm not. That was a printer's error. We've asked that that be corrected. It probably means that you got one of the early printings, but I'm not sure because they're being printed by the millions around the world. I don't have the same privileges that you who are physicians have in interfacing in the same way with patients. But at the same time, I have had and continue to have the privilege and opportunity of ministering to people, as all of you do, in your various capacities. And the same principles apply, and we need to recognize that it's not our work, but it is God's working through us that brings about the accomplishment of God's mission here on this earth. As we begin talking about some effective principles of health ministry, I would like to ask the question, what is health ministry? The word rolls off of our tongues. It has for many of us for decades. But what does it really mean? 
What do we mean when we say health ministry? Well, I would like to suggest this morning that it is more than a set of scientifically established health practices. It is more important than all of its individual component parts. The whole message carries greater weight than the individual pieces. And it does far more than modern science can demonstrate. We're thrilled with what we see taking place in the world of science today. We see the confirmation of principles and practices that we have, that we have espoused and taught for decades. And we're thrilled by that. But it's more, the whole health message is more than what science can demonstrate. And the eternal health benefits come only from Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so the Seventh-day Adventist health message, when rightly applied, can bring the dead to life. I'll talk more about that in a moment. But as Dr. Mills so adequately, eloquently demonstrated and shared last night, our work, no matter what it is or what, in what capacity, is, is really dependent upon the unction of the Holy Spirit. You surgeons can do marvelous procedures. And they will help people for a time. But to truly help people understand the eternal value requires the Holy Spirit. The influence of the Holy Spirit is needed that the work may be properly balanced and that it may move forward solidly in every line. This is not new science. This is not new principles. We've known this for years. God uses the gospel ministry, medical missionary work, and the publications containing present truth to impress hearts. All are made effectual by means of faith. As the truth is heard or read, the Holy Spirit sends it home to those who hear and read with an earnest desire to know what is right. Our work is almost meaningless without the Holy Spirit bringing what we're sharing in our sometimes less than effective ways home to the hearts of those who are seeking help. I was a newly minted health educator, having been a pastor, then felt a calling to take uh, training to become more, uh, ex- or, or to have more knowledge in the area of health. Um, I believe fervently in health ministry. I believe that it was the right arm of the gospel. Not the work, but the right arm of the work. The work that would prepare hearts and minds to receive the gospel message in its fullness at this time in earth's history. And in my immature way, I was really very passionate about my move to get this kind of training and now the opportunity to begin to put it into practice in a local community. 
Lord called us to a large metropolitan city church, a church where the conference president said, we haven't had any baptisms save for a few biological ones in the past 14 years. And so now we're ready to try health ministry. And I thought, wonderful, God must be working. And he was, but not always in the way that I thought he was. And we embarked upon launching a church-based health education program in that city. We were in a largely Jewish neighborhood. Uh, We had very, very secular people that came. One of my first challenges was the health education committee that had been established by the local church. Um, And I was introduced to them when I arrived. And it was chaired by one of the local physicians. And he said to me, as we were talking about our plans, my plans, what my vision was, when he learned I, wanted, I was planning to use the local fellow, I mean the fellowship hall downstairs for our programs, he said to me, no, 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 nobody will come into this church from the neighborhood. He said, you're going to have to rent a hall down the street at a hotel, on quite a, quite a distance down the street. And... Um, This was in the context of an unlimited budget that had been promised before I came, and never believe those kinds of promises. There's no no such thing. Uh, When I arrived, they'd already overspent the unlimited budget that the treasurer had set to buy a piece of equipment that they thought I needed without consulting me. Um, So we had our challenges, and I said, where are we going to get the money? to rent this hall, and he said, well, I don't know, I hadn't thought of that. But then he said, how are you going to get the money to run the programs you want to do? And I said, well, I'm not sure. But I said, I'm sure the Lord will provide, because this is the Lord's work. And he said, well, you're going to have to charge for your programs. And I said, do you charge for evangelistic meetings? And he said, no. I said, this is health evangelism. And we had an interesting discussion. And he said, I'll give you six months to do it your way. Those were his words. Over the years, we became very close friends. He was an enormous benefit and help. But God helped us through each of those hurdles. But the biggest hurdle that I faced, was, and, and it became a disappointment, was that while I made some references to the Creator and to this beautiful body that, that, that we were trying to take care of and help them learn how to make changes to, that would benefit them and so forth, um, that, that is the audiences that came, and people came, believe it or not. They came through our doors, and over a period of seven years, we had several thousand people from the local neighborhood who came for at least four nights, and many of them many, many more nights to hear and learn about health. But I was frustrated because it wasn't working quite like I thought it would. I believed I needed to go and visit some of these people who were coming and I'd tell them about it and they'd say, sure, and I'd knock on their door and they'd invite me in and they were very warm and friendly and they would say, by the way, You know, I've been thinking about what you were presenting and how do I apply this? And they'd ask me questions about nutrition and they'd ask me questions about 
about all manner of health things, how they should exercise, how they could exercise better or some of their struggles. But when I tried to bring the conversation around to spiritual things, they said, by the way, is it gonna snow tomorrow? Or who's gonna win the ball game this weekend? And I knew what they were telling me. They weren't comfortable talking about those things. I was living in fear of offending people because of any overt spiritual approach. And an old family friend, and I have to laugh now because he had just retired and he was probably roughly about my age at that time and I thought he was one leg in the grave. Um, But uh, he called me and said he was going to be in town. Could he come and stay with us for a few days? And he came with me to programs and he came with me on visitation. He was a retired pastor and I didn't know really that he had a lot of interest or certainly not much knowledge, certainly not formal knowledge or training about health, but he had been a family friend. And so I, well, we welcomed him into our home and uh, he spent three or four days with us. And on the last day, he said to me, and I, as we were driving around to visits and other activities, I had shared with him my frustration. And he just listened. But on the last day, he said to me words that I will never forget and that have changed my ministry. He said, Fred, if you want to be seen as a spiritual person, you must identify yourself as such. And I said, but what do you mean? And he said, Fred, People who come to your programs, they see you as a health expert, but they don't see you as a person that has a religious or spiritual experience. And so when you go to their home and you bring up the subject, it's foreign to them. I said, but how do I do that? And he said, well, he said, there are many ways you can do that, but he said, you don't have to give a Bible study in your health classes. He said, you don't have to talk about the Sabbath. You don't have to talk about the 2300 days. He said, just talk to people about what the Bible has to say about health. Make it related to what you're talking about that evening. And then he left. And I wrestled and wrestled, fearful that as soon as I began doing that, whatever that meant, the people would turn and run out the door. And I'll never forget that finally God's Spirit laid a burden on my heart that I needed to really put this into practice. And we were in the middle of a cooking class and we were going to talk about desserts that night at that next class. And I I just knew I had to start. And I prayed and I wrestled and I had no idea. And finally I went to the book of Proverbs and I found two passages on sweetener and honey. And that evening at that class, I opened my Bible. I welcomed them. I opened my Bible and I said, you know, this is an Old Testament, safe for Jews um, passage. And so I read them these two passages about not using sweetener excessively and... I was probably scared to death. They probably all knew I was. I was nervous. I can still feel it. Um, And then I said, let's bow our heads 
and ask God to be here this evening. And when I open my eyes from the prayer, I expect to see half the group just leaving. But you know, they all sat there. They stayed the whole evening. That week, I knocked on one of their doors. Several of their doors. And they welcomed me in, as they always had. But we had hardly sat down. They said, by the way, I had no idea the Bible had anything to say about health. And they opened the door wide to discussions about spiritual things. All kinds of discussions. And it totally changed what I was doing. I think sometimes, and I hear all these, I hear people say to me, oh, we can't talk about spiritual things because we'll offend people. Now, there may have been a few that were offended and just never came back. I don't know. There was only one that I know. I made the mistake one evening. Well, it probably wasn't a mistake, but at that time I thought maybe it was. But I prayed at the beginning of a, of a class, the first class, and it was a weight control class, and I prayed in Christ's name, which I usually did. And this red-headed lady headed out the door, stomping her feet. And uh, I knew I had offended her, and we had some staff at the door, and she muttered about this prayer in Christ's name. And a few weeks later, I phoned her up, and I said to her, you know, you came, I'm the guy that was up at the front, you may not remember that. Oh, she said, I do. And I said, I, I must have offended you. Oh, she said, you prayed in Christ's name, and I'm a Jew. And I said, I'm really sorry to offend you. And then she softened, and she said, you know, I should have known that because I came to a Christian church. <laughs> and I asked her if we could come visit her, and she said, sure. She never came back to another program, but I had the privilege of talking with her, and for about 15 years, she sent my wife and I a Christmas card every, every year. <laughs> she was a lawyer. Um, she didn't really get to benefit from what we had to share, but we did bridge that gap and at least befriended her in a little way, in a small way. Too often we, I think, misunderstand Ellen White's statements about disinterested benevolence. You know, disinterested benevolence is not hiding our light under a bushel. Disinterested benevolence is not, having, is not having a conflict of interest. And it's not a conflict of interest to carry out the mission that God has given to each of us. That's why we're placed here on this earth. And it, we don't need to preach the, the cardinal doctrines, but people need to see Jesus as the effective agent of change. They need to see Jesus as the one who will help them accomplish the goals that they have come to the programs for. They come because they have needs. They usually come to us as a last resort. They've tried everything else. And now they come to a church for help.
What if they don't find that help? The help they really need. And so I'm not suggesting that our health programs begin teaching evangelistic principles. But we need to be sharing Jesus and his love and his power with those who come to our programs. The advice that I received nearly 40 years ago has changed my approach forever. Yes, I was afraid that I'd lose my audience, that they'd be offended. My first steps in that direction were very tentative, for sure. But God had to work with me, just as he desires to work in the lives of those that we have the privilege of touching. And so we need to make sure, if we're going to have effective health ministry, we need to share Jesus as the only effective agent of change. You know, sometimes that message just goes in one ear and out the other of people who are sitting in our programs. And then they come and say, I'm having trouble with such and such. And we have the privilege of saying to them, maybe, can I pray with you? And that simple prayer to one who is looking for help brings the, the help of all of heaven into their lives. And it, it's those little baby steps, one at a time, that eventually, by God's grace, leads to conversion. Medical missionary work is in no case to be divorced from the gospel ministry. We have strong counsel in that direction. The Lord has specified that the two shall be as closely connected with the arm as with the body. Without this union, neither part of the work is complete. The medical missionary work is the gospel in illustration. The gospel of health is to be firmly linked with the ministry of the word. It is the Lord's desire, design, that the restoring influence of health reform shall be a part of the last great effort to proclaim the gospel message. And that's the day and age in which we're living today, and he's speaking to us in that light. I'm really troubled sometimes that there are lots and lots of godless programs out there in the church. Out in the world, there are all kinds of godless programs. And they try to teach people how to pull themselves up by their own boots. And those of you who are health educators, have done health education, you know how successful, how, well, maybe I should say how hard it is to get people to make changes permanently. It's really the toughest thing that we're asked to do. You are physicians. You see them in their office. You need to eat less of this. You need to eat more of this. You see them six weeks later. How many of them are following your counsel? Not very many. They come to our programs. We say you need to exercise. How many people exercise on a regular basis when you tell them to do that? Even though you have a tremendous influence as a health professional in their lives, they're looking for you to help them. But when it comes, I mean, if you ask them, if you write a script and they go to the pharmacy and they fill it, they're going to come back and ask you for the refill, right? But if you say, you know, if you go out and walk every morning for 30 minutes, it'll do the same thing. And you see them six weeks later, how many? It's behavior change. It's the toughest thing. Look at your own lives. How many things do you know you need to be doing that you aren't doing? 
I have to point my fingers at myself. We all struggle with that very same issue. But the goal of our programs must be to introduce people to the only power that can allow them to make permanent change in their lives. And that's the power of God. So what is the real problem? Is it poor food choices that are people making? Well, yes. Is it lack of exercise? Yes. Anxiety or depression? Could be. Too much television? A weak experience with God? A high fructose corn syrup? Too much wheat? GM foods? You can just go on and on and on in making the lists. Well, what is the real problem? I would like to suggest to you, and I would like to encourage you to turn in your Bibles or your phones or wherever you have your Bible to Ephesians 2, your tablets. Um, Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. For those who don't have anything, I have it on the screen. Um, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. That's a description of all of us before we met Jesus. And it describes those who come to us for help, either to your practice or to your classes in the community or wherever you conduct them. And, you know, we could say that we're all dead, devilish, disobedient, and depraved. And that's really the, dis- the description of humankind as given here by the Bible writer. So, this is Joe, and Joe is dead. But Joe has come to one of your classes. Should we set a good example for Joe? You know, we can model good exercise. We can eat right around him. We can show him that we don't smoke. We can avoid depressive speech and attitudes. And the list goes on. Is that going to change Joe? Is that going to bring him back to life? Well, we all know that that won't. Should we educate Joe? Educate him about portion control, the importance of avoiding trans fats, dangers of cheese, stress management, depression recovery, and the list goes on. Will education bring Joe back to life? It won't. Should we give him encouragement? You know all the sayings, you can do it, don't give up, no time to be discouraged, it's going to get better when when the worst part is over with, and... We have a whole repertoire of those sayings. But that will not bring Joe back to life. Should we provide him with better, a better environment? Maybe send him to a lifestyle center. Remove him from the bad environment in which he's living. Put him with other successful people. Put him, surround him with positive role models. Create an encouraging uh, setting in which he can make those changes. Will that bring Joe back to life. You know, the reality is that none of these things will bring Joe back to life. But the answer is found in the next three verses of Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy, 
because of his great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When we take the the God view of mankind, the only way people change is in Christ Jesus. All other changes, at best, are very short-term. To arouse those spiritually dead, to create new tastes, new motives, requires as great an outlay of power as to raise one from the physical death. You know, we often talk about Jesus and his healing ministry on this earth, and we marvel at those he healed. And those are inspiring stories without question. But God is calling each one of you, each one of us, to become healers. Maybe not with the scalpel, maybe not with the years of residential training, specialty training, but maybe on our knees in praying for our patients. Bringing them back to life. Not just physical life, but spiritual life that lasts forever. It is indeed giving life to the dead to convert the sinner from the error of his ways. So the health message is not to be separated from the gospel message. The most skillful and perceptive scientist cannot bring the dead to life. Only the gospel actually brings the dead to life because Jesus is the health giver and Jesus is the life giver. And that's a very high calling for all of us. But it can only be met by being on our knees. And so our mission today is to proclaim the health message in the context of the gospel message. The health principles alone may yield a few years of additional life, but our commission is to teach and demonstrate that the power to change comes from Jesus. If you were to practice in the United States, you'd live in fear of malpractice. Phil can tell you all about it. Other countries it may not be exactly the same or to the same magnitude. But all of you health professionals know what malpractice is. You have your boards that look, look over and review practices and, and so forth, making sure that you are, you, are, you are practicing the best for each of your patients. And it may be defined differently, but I would like to suggest to you that there is also spiritual malpractice that you could be guilty of as a Christian health professional. I don't think you'll find any definition for it. I've, 
I wrote this one, it could be modified, but I would suggest that spiritual malpractice is negligence by act or omission by a Christian who fails to share the availability of God's power to change and heal, thereby causing continuing pain and injury and eventual eternal death. Are we guilty of spiritual malpractice? I often have heard this question, been asked on panels, should we be doing health education or should we be doing evangelism? It's an interesting question. We've spent a lot of time talking about it. Um, Dr. Mills last night, I thought he was going to put up my, my little table here, but it turned out to be slightly different, but it goes in the same direction. You know, if we just focus on health, the benefits are temporary. Yes, people can be better, they can feel better, they can live longer, and they can be more effective and productive in their lives. And that's a contribution to them. But we all still die. As long as we live here on this earth. And evangelism, the benefits are eternal. And it really doesn't matter if you live or die. Many of you have had experiences similar to this. I, ran a li- I was part of a lifestyle center for 10 years in the United States. We had a man who was in last stages of prostate cancer, metastasized to his bone. He was in a great deal of pain. He wanted to come, and we told him that our lifestyle center wasn't going to be able to help him. But he said, I want to come. And while he was there, we offered him anointing. Special prayer, as the book of James recommends. He said, I would like to, but I can't. Several times he refused with the same words. And finally, just before his session ended, he said, I, our, our physician said to him, but why can't you? And he then, in tears, poured out a story of how he had disappointed his daughter and son-in-law in the way he had given a car to a grandson. And the parents had said, please don't, and he had gone ahead and done that. And there, there, was, a, there was a big rift in the family. And the doctor said, do you think your daughter would talk to me? And he said, oh, he probably would. So he got the number, and in his presence, he dialed his daughter's home, and the son-in-law answered. And the doctor introduced himself, and he said, oh, yeah, we know he's there. He said, how's he doing? It was a very friendly voice. And the doctor said, would you be willing to talk to your son-in-law, or to your father-in-law? And he said, sure. And so the phone was handed over, and the doctor left the room, and the, the man apologized to his son-in-law for what he had done. And when he hung up the phone, the doctor came back in. And he said, the patient said, I'm ready. Two days later, he left our program. And a week later, that man's wife called and said, we're just letting you know that he passed away. But he found healing at your program. Now, he didn't find an extension of life, but he was healed 
by God's grace for eternity. We can't separate health and evangelism. God has not commissioned us to do that. The world is filled with the godless programs. We need, as Seventh-day Adventist health workers, we must combine the health with the evangelism. The gospel is to be bound up with the principles of true health reform. The gospel and the medical missionary work are to advance together. Christianity is to be brought into the practical life. You know, we have to recognize, it doesn't matter what we're doing, what kind of program we're involved in, we must recognize that man cannot transform himself by the exercise of his own will. He possesses no power by which, to change, by which this change can be effected. All the culture and education which the world can give will fail of making a degraded child of sin a child of heaven. And maybe that's why some of our programs fail. Because we have not included the most essential message. The renewing energy must come from God. We should ever remember that the object of the medical missionary work is to point sin-sick men and women to the man of Calvary who takes away the sin of this world. What time do I have? This afternoon we'll continue with a few more of the essentials. But it is my prayer that as we look at the ministry that God has called each of us to, that we make sure that by his grace and in his strength, we find ways of pointing people to Jesus as the true healer and as the one, the only one, who can change lives. Let's bow our heads. Shall we stand together? Our loving Father in heaven, you have given to us a wonderful calling, each one. You have commissioned us to share with others the love of Jesus and the power that comes only from him to make permanent changes in our lives and in the lives we seek to minister to. We ask, Father, that we might not miss those opportunities, but that we might become students in your school, that we may personally understand and experience that life-changing power, that we can share it with others in a personal and experiential way, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.